I mean, there's so many people who who love and and are intrigued by the Egyptian temples and monuments, but there's so few of them that are aware where it all came from. Gebelsela was the source of of these temples and these divine structures, if you want to call it like that. Um, which is why we call it Madame Zelzela, the mother of all the temples. And that, that is the, the core of what we're doing. We would like people to be aware of, of this site being the source of all the splendor of, of Egyptian monuments. You know, as Maria's already mentioned with the stele of Ramesses, all of these barges would have been lined up across them. There would have been, the sailors would have been there the the oarsmen, the rudderman, the rope makers, the the men who pulled the sledges, the men who've unloaded the barges with the empty sledges that have come back from the temples, having deposited their blocks off. Um, the sledges would then have to be taken back up into the quarry site itself along the transportation routes. All of this hustle and bustle was full of life. And today, nothing. Hey there, Karen here, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of the work we do over time and across cultures. And today's topic is so literally monumental, we brought in three experts to help us bring it to life. We're going back more than 3,000 years to New Kingdom, Egypt to visit two of the job sites that contributed to the production of some of the ancient world's most iconic monuments. We start with the dynamic duo of Dr. Maria Nielsen and John Ward, Nat Geo explorers and archaeologists who have spent over 10 years uncovering the secrets of Jebel El Silsila, a little-known quarry site that supplied the stone for, well, pretty much every major temple you'd see along a hit parade Nile River tour today. Then, joined by Egyptologist Sophia Aziz, we zero in on the valley of the king's site, Deir el-Medina, where extraordinarily detailed archaeological and historical records reveal the lives of one group of ancient Egyptian construction workers in truly unbelievable detail. You think worker strikes and social media are a modern phenomenon? Think again. As with so many things, it seems the Egyptians got there first. So, let's tread the dust of two of their most prolific building sites. Like an Egyptian, of course. Dr. Maria Nielsen is a Swedish archaeologist and Egyptologist who, together with her husband, British archaeologist John Ward, has headed a decade of literally groundbreaking field research at the vast Jebel El Silsila quarry and necropolis site located south of Luxor on the River Nile. Maria and John are both National Geographic explorers and have been fellows of the Explorers Club since 2018. I'd love to start by having the two of you introduce us to the site of Jebel El Silsila. Uh, Silsila is located, just like you said, south of Luxor, uh, north of Aswan in the southern part of Egypt. Um, it's uh, the, the concession that we're, we're in charge of is stretching for over 30 square kilometers or 11 and a half square miles. So it's a massive Oof, site. It's huge. Uh, and of course, with that site comes over 10,000 years of human activity. And uh, this is the reason why we got over 80 
international members of the team, we require to have experts from here, there and everywhere to, to make this project possible. And uh, that's what's so exciting with it. So John actually arranged for, for me to visit these temples by means of traveling on a small sailing boat, uh, Feluca. Uh, starting from Aswan, heading north towards Luxor. And we had only known each other for three days when the captain turned around and said, there's some pharaonic here, would you like to stop? And uh, normally we would probably have said no, but uh, there was plenty of time. And we agreed, why not? We had time, why not go and see some pharaonic? <laughs> Who why would not? say no, huh? Don't see that every day. Uh, no. And uh, there we was, we set, uh, the boat came to the shores of Selsila. We I love the way you say with a smile on your face as if you're reminiscing some wonderful, you know. Well, it is the memory. start of everything. I mean, that, that was back in 2007. Um, we've gotten quite a long way since then. Yeah. But uh, so we visited the, the main tourist attraction, the, the Rockart Temple, the Spears there, and of course it's it's splendid to see. Uh, but it wasn't until we got around its side, the outside, and we both stood looking at this series of symbols that were engraved into the cliff face. Uh, for, for normal uh, men, you would call them uh, mason marks or, or uh, I mean, anyone who, who read Dan Brown's books will probably go jumping up and down. Uh, it's that kind of enigmatic symbols that just capture your interest immediately. And, and so it did with us for, for different reasons. I mean, John has a background in, in uh, studying mason marks from, from the European um, medieval churches and, and uh, architecture. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so John, John knew right away that... I, I was jumping up with. and down because I, I was so excited <laughs> seeing them. I mean, we'd already been kind of documenting, well, I had documenting them at uh, Feli and all the other sites that we'd stopped at. Um, ah. But when we got to sort of, sort of, there were these new symbols, which I'd also seen elsewhere, in, especially in the UK. And I was, I was beyond ecstatic. And Maria was beyond ecstatic. But, but as Maria just said, you know, we, we were both jumping up and down for totally different reasons. <laughs> and it wasn't until that moment that we both looked each other in the eyes and realized that, hang on a minute, something else is going on here other than these symbols. And I don't mind saying it. I mean, it was there and then that we made a promise to, to the side that, and to ourselves that we would dedicate the rest of our life to deciphering those symbols and the site that came with it. Because that day then just unfolded what was going to be a, a two to five minute stop uh, ended up being there for an entire day. We spent the night there, and then we, we left it early in the morning. It, it was one of those uh, moments where you just knew that life had changed. Oh, that's wonderful. And, you know, it's, it's great because, uh, frankly, that is kind of the popular image of what archaeology is. And I know, you know, as a field archaeologist myself by training, it's not actually very common that it happens that way. You no, really no. have experienced something so special there. And let me ask you, did you know right away that it was a quarry site? I mean, John, you knew there was the signs of, of stonework carved on these rocks, but you know, did you know immediately what it was? 
it, it, it was quite obvious that someone had worked these surfaces of the cliffs. To, to return to your question then, Karen, I mean, the first goal that we had when we, when we started work on site was to document actually the, the Greek or Roman epigraphy. Uh, that means the, the engraved and written um, inscriptions and, and pictures, these symbols that were carved into the quarry faces. You mentioned 11 square miles, 10,000 years of human activity at this site. Could I ask you to zero in on some particularly more manageable slice of time, perhaps, that we could focus on in our conversation? I think that one of the most intriguing phases of uh, the history at Silsila is the 18th dynasty. There's a lot of people out there that, that can recognize when you speak about the great pharaohs, the Tutankhamun, um, you know, the, the Tutmosite period, Amenhotep III. Um, there's a lot of names during that dynasty. And that is a lot this of Hatshepsut's uh, dynasty Indeed as well? Indeed it is. It is. Oh, I love Hatshepsut. I'm so fascinated by the whole. <laughs> and I know you're, um, one piece of your research is on, on the queens of Egypt, and I'm, yes. I'm very fascinated by that too. Fantastic. The 18th dynasty is like the hit parade, and everyone can relate to that. That's terrific. During during this dynasty, the 18th dynasty, um, Silsila, the, the chorus of Silsila actually was part of placing Egypt or pushing Egypt into its golden age. You mentioned Hatshepsut, and, and it is due to her and, and uh, her father's and, and uh, followers' um, activity there on site that just changed the architecture and the, the wealth the prosperity of the country for generations to come. Um, we have this architectural change that go from limestone to sandstone. And it is because of the site of Silsila that we have that. It facilitated the buildings, uh, all, all these monuments stretching from Aswan in the south all the way up to modern day uh, Kenna with Dendera, the, the, the splendid temple there. These are all what we call children of Silsila. We, we refer to her, this site, as, as Madame Silsila because it was her that gave birth to all these children in, in a symbolic Madame way. Madame Silsila, I love yeah. it. And I mean, those are the amazing monuments that you see when you go on mm. a tour up the Nile. I, I was fortunate enough to do that some time ago and I've, I visited Karnak and Luxor and oh my gosh, Dendera, it's practically intact, mm. right? I mean, it's amazing. So seriously, all of those were built with stone from Silsila? Indeed they were. And we can pinpoint quite a few of them from the particular quarries. There, there's 104 quarries that we've documented. Um, on site and there's several of them that we can pinpoint what? the final destination so yeah that's amazing and how do you do that what is the what is the the um, signature on the stone that goes to a particular building the symbols is one part the if if i would widen it i would say epigraphy at large so it's the the mason marks of the symbols together with inscriptions and together with archaeology well, from the 18th dynasty, we, we, we got quite a few monuments, especially on the East Bank that, that date from the reign of Amenhotep III and the renowned uh, pharaoh Akhenaten before he actually turned into the, this heretic pharaoh that he was or described to be. 
Um, and we have the, the inscriptions that tell us that they opened the quarries in order to, to extract stones for the building of these sacred monuments. During this time in the Old Kingdom, we see a switch from limestone to sandstone construction. Do we know why that happened? Well, that, that's a very simple answer. If you were to look at any of the remains of the limestone structures within Egypt, uh, you'll see that they're pretty small and compact. Sandstone allowed them to build bigger and larger, basically. Than oh, okay. Yeah, um, that is really simple. Interesting. It, it, okay. It's a very simple answer. It's architraves. Uh, instead of being restricted to just, say, a half a meter block of limestone, you could all of a sudden quarry a two meter long length architrave of sandstone that could span one pillar to another and therefore give you a height to your building, uh, plus a, build, uh, a roof, or two floors, three floors. Uh, the sandstone is such a durable material that they were able to harness it, that allowed them to have a technological advancement over that of limestone. And so you had this explosion of architecture across the whole of Egypt's landscape, uh, basically down to one site, and that is Sosila. Oh, that makes so much sense. And and Maria, you, you mentioned that Hatshepsut was somehow instrumental in the emergence of Silsila as a mm. major supply source for this kind of stone. How, what, how did that come about? Well, we actually, we, we refer to the Tutmosite period, um, which is what Hatshepsut was part of. We, we refer to that as our red thread that goes through everything that we do at the moment. Uh, we have found a so-called ghost relief inside a rock cut temple, uh, i.e. that it's, it's an usurped scene, it's an original relief scene that shows a vessel carrying an obelisk. And the only, the only comparable example of that is found within Hatshepsut's mortuary temple in, in modern day oh, Luxor. Wow. Um, wow. So that, that is one part. We also have 32 shrines that are uh, decorating the West Bank throughout the Nile, um, along, the, uh, along the, the Nile. And they were created by the families of people, uh, noblemen, architectures, the, uh, the head of the, the army and so forth, important people who were all part of the quarrying process or the overseeing of the quarrying process. So another puzzle, uh, piece of the puzzle is the, the cemetery that we're excavating at the moment. So far we excavated 73 burials and the, the names that we have found are uh, from this period, Tutmosis II, all the way up to Amenhotep uh, II. So we got those few generations, which is during the time of Hatshepsut and her followers. I mean, during the Middle Kingdom, the previous periods, as John said, we have sporadic quarrying, but it isn't until post Hatshepsut that we see this industry uh, that that grows around the site. I think it's, it's I think it's something nice to talk about there is is the transition of workforce, uh, which goes hand in hand with with power, power of the pharaoh, and I think there's something to be said there that during the Tufmosite period we see relative calm and a, a kind of as Miriam was alluding to a community 
of work workers, their families, their children, their wives, and so forth, living in the actual site itself in ancient Kheni. And then we see after that period, there's a bit of a transition in the powerhouse, and we start to see other people coming in. We see more migratory workforce taking over. And as stated there about the decrees and so forth, during the Ramesside period, we see thousands being sent out to the quarry. So to, to, to create a little mystery or enigma for you, uh, one of the things that we're, we're working on now, and we're actually setting up a, a massive project to deal with this, is that we know that during a time when the people of this community were buried, they were the last ones of the actual town. After the Tutmosite period, before Ramses the Great came to power, um, we, we have a collapse of society, more or less, and we no longer see the local community as part of this coring process in the same way. So if we move forward in time to the 19th dynasty and Ramses the Great, um, when we have this beautiful stele on, on site with, uh, with the depiction of how the entire coring process took place, Oh, that beautiful one you sent to me. Yeah, exactly. So during that time, we no longer see that you got an active community. Instead, it is an expedition sent to be there for the quarrying and then leave. So a migratory workforce. It's fascinating. I mean, it, it's sort of, I mean, to make a, a gross comparison, which isn't fair on many levels, but I, I think actually in the broad sense, it, it works a bit to say it's almost like the shift to an industrial society in you know, sort of 19th century Europe. It's really what it sounds like, as opposed to work and life being managed on um, a more uh, individual and I'm not going to say self-directed basis. Clearly, somebody was directing these thousands and thousands of workers at this site, even in the Tutmosid period, presumably. But it, it's more like going off to work and then and then going back to where you live in that well, later 19th dynasty. The, the, the site itself is an industrial complex. Uh, when you talk about the site management, the quarry management of it all, uh, it, it is precision because you can't, if, if there's just one part of that infrastructure that collapses or goes awry, the whole system, the whole infrastructure just collapses over. Oh, I can imagine. C could you um, walk us through that, uh, John and or Maria? You know, sort of who was in charge and what was the chain of command? Well, that's, that's, that's actually quite a difficult one because, again, all we've got to rely on there is relief, which shows us the overseers and, and the scribes. Uh, taken account of how many well in, in terms of so hierarchy it's 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 quite you can you can simplify it by saying of course the pharaoh is the one in charge then he has yeah. lead with the architectures and the the scribes and and the, the people who control the work and then you got the the middle class the workers the you'd, have a, you'd have a hierarchy as you do today within egyptian workforce you'd have a race a race for those who are listening <laughs> it is, is the, the overseer, is the overseer. Um, okay. and then you have the workers and even the workers themselves have a hierarchy 
But it would have been a family business. You've got to remember that, Karen, that, you know, the father and son or even daughter in these days. Yeah, um, tell me about that. I I haven't gotten that sense yet. I'd love to hear um, how that would have worked in a in a family of workers, let's just say. Well, you've got to put yourself into a quarry worker, into a mason. Uh, The son, he would have watched his father. The son is watching his father and so forth. And they would have all learnt the trade of how to extract a block, how to listen to the stone when tapping it, where the stratification is, where the fracture lines are, how to read the landscape and how to effectively enhance the extraction of stone in a very quick uh, methodology. But what intrigues me is when we have a changeover, uh, especially during the time of Akhenaten, uh, where we've gone from, say, just under a ton, ton in uh, weight block uh, down to the talatan, which is 60 kilograms, which you can carry on your shoulder. Um, so from father oh. to son, there would have been this huge kind of, damn, what am I going to do now? I, I've been watching dad for the past <laughs> 20 years. Uh, he's taught me how to... He taught me the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. And so it is interesting to see how this works, especially on the ground, because we see the, the different types of extraction methods, trenching and so forth. Um, and how that then relates to the actual site itself, and then how to put that into a real person context, a family context, father, son, grandfather, and so forth, this hierarchy. But if you look at what what we've found on on site in in terms of uh, the the epigraphy, the written records on on the walls, together with the the skeleton remains and and, uh, archaeology at large, What is intriguing is that while uh, there's a lot of talk about the quarries being worked at in uh, by by the slaves, we don't have evidence for for a slave force to be there, possibly because you wouldn't see them in the records. But what we do see is a a form of, let's say, uh, low to middle class, um, rather middle class families that are active working there and they're looked after. We got evidence, if you look at the skeleton remains, we can see that they they had medical treatment and we even have the the scene, the one that I sent you uh, of the stealer, that shows how a a medical doctor attends an injured worker. Oh, I think that's amazing. And it's really in some ways instantly antithetical to assumptions about what an industrial complex is and and what it means to the people who labor within it. Um, And it also really runs counter, I I think, to a lot of assumptions people have about slave labor, building all of these monuments in in Egypt. And I understand what we're talking about is sourcing the raw material, but still, as you mentioned, that is is one of the assumptions about the assumption is biblical. I mean, that is first and foremost. Um, but f- as Maria has quite rightly said, you know, from the archaeological record, from what we've seen on the ground for the last 13 plus years, um, year on year, is that it, it is remiss. It's not there. There is no evidence of slave labor. Uh, what we are seeing on the ground is a very methodical workplace. Um, it's a tidy office. You know, it's a tidy workshop. It's a tidy work site. Uh, there is no mess unless you get to the Roman part and then it's completely chaos. 
Um, but you know, that's, oh, the that's what happens with those, those empires, that sort of empire, right? Whatever did the Romans do for us? <laughs> build bigger spoil heaps. Oh, well, you know what? I, now I, I'm going to just actually ask if we can pick up with that very interesting phrase. I love that. It was a tidy office. So is it possible to walk us through the process of extracting and moving the stone to where it needed to go from the very beginning, surveying the landscape to selecting where you're gonna, gonna try to extract stone, how you're going to do it. And, and what are the individual tasks involved in doing that? What are the tools involved? Well, I think if, if I'm allowed to start and I'm just gonna recite that stealer that we've been talking about several times now, because that paints that picture of what quarrying was like oh, and then please John do, because the, 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 the listeners don't have the benefit of looking at it so no. that'd be fantastic no so so it's 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 an amazing um commemorating uh, image it's it's like a blueprint really of what ancient quarrying was like and i'm not going to go into the details here i'm going to give over to hand over to john so he can continue but this dealer it depicts from from in a movement from left to right and in in several registers we got at the upper left corner we got the depiction of how scaffolding are situated upon the quarry face or towards the, against the quarry face next to that we see the masons working with a chisel and ha and mallet they are being controlled by, by administrators. And then you got a scene where you show the, that shows the, the medical doctor looking after this injured worker. If you then go to the next step, you see that block that was extracted at the top by the masons. That is now placed upon a sledge. And you can see that it's a round top stealer. So it's some form of official decree. It's this sledge is then pulled down towards the Nile side key by numerous people. It's difficult to count them because there's so many of them. And there by the Nile side key sits this barge awaiting its, its cargo. And the, the image actually shows this round top still are being placed upon the boat. And all of this is being monitored by the, the chief uh, intendants. Uh, and two scribes that are taking account of what's going on. And, and it's, and it's just a beautiful amazing. story. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. And what, my first question is, why do you think they documented each step in this process? I, I, I honestly think that the entire quarrying process is as sacred as the opening up of a temple. It's part of the, the sacred ritual in, 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 a, in a larger sense. I mean, we know that the Pharaoh had to, to perform a certain ceremonies in order to even start work to, to erect a new temple. And, and what we can see on site is that this ritual actually started already before. It wasn't, it wasn't at a temple, it was already at the quarry site. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. I think there's also a, pr a practical answer to that as well, then, Maria. <laughs> oh, I like my rituals. Yeah, you, you love your rituals. I like them too. A... That's, a, that's our answer for everything we don't quite understand. But I think in this case, it's actually it's really well applied. It is. I think this, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm eager to hear what you have to say, John, but I'm coming down with Maria on this, that there's a ritual aspect to this. 
Um, at the end of the day, the architects who would have drawn up the plans for the temple know exactly how many blocks they need. Uh, the scribes that are there in attendance, of course, are keeping a tally of what's happening and what's going on. Uh, we even have on site itself, we have open quarries where the blocks are still in situ, where they're, they're just about to be released. You could put the lever mark in there, you could just prise it up from its bedrock and lift it out. But it hasn't, it's been abandoned or it's been left. Uh, even the trenching, and that's the um, the gouge mark that goes around the block that, that really frees it from its bedrock uh, foundation. Uh, that's all been completed. Uh, the pecking, which is underneath the block, which fractures the block from the bedrock, that's taken place. Uh, and so effectively, you've got a finished block just left there. Well, it's superfluous. It didn't, they didn't require it. The, the, you've hit your quota, boys. Let's go home. Let's go build a temple. Um, and, and I think that's where we got to. I think that's one of the beautiful things about Sicilia is that we have all of this still in situ. It's still there. It's like, as we said before, it's, it's a time capsule. And do you think that in the case of the papyri, is anything about that to do with the pharaoh trying to not just document this in terms of you know economic activity but you know as, as shall we call it a political statement of power well of course uh each quarrying expedition was a massive um it, it, it was a it was propaganda in many ways uh it, it was a way for him to show that he, him or her because hatchup did the same thing it was a way to show that the pharaoh was in control. They could manage these sites and they could bring wealth and prosperity to the country. They could, could erect new temples. So of course, you're very right in that assumption. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And I mean, in a sense, it makes me wonder if you think it'd be a step too far to even, even say that, that these, these quarrying sites and obviously the buildings that they fed um, you know, really represent some of the most elemental aspects of ancient Egyptian cosmology, as well as, you know, the political statement. I guess they're all intertwined, aren't they? They are. They are. You're correct. I wonder, I mean, is there anything in the modern era, any kind of building site or industrial site of any kind that, that you could think of that might come close to this? Every single building site anywhere in the world. Um, one of the beautiful things about which when we have students on site, I always talk them through the landscape and so forth. Um, but one of the fundamental things is that to take a moment and look at the grandeur of the, of the quarries and the infrastructure that we still have there today, as Maria's already mentioned, the ramps, the keys, and the transportation routes, and the post holes, and the rope holes, the pulleys, all of that's still there. Um, but to relate that into a modern uh, context, you, one only has to stop in the high street, wherever you live, uh, be that in New York or be that in London or be that here in Stockholm, Sweden, and just look up. Look up at the skyline. Look at yeah. the buildings around you. Look at the architecture. And they all have names on attached to them, don't they? It's not so unlike the pharaohs, is it? <laughs> that is the most beautiful thing for me is when you ask that question about have we got a modern context? Yes, every building site because it's, it's fundamentally exactly the same. You have management, you have site management, you have the workers, you have the lower workers, you have the apprentices and so forth. And you have the tradesmen that come in and out bringing different uh, variety of tools and so forth and taking deliveries and, and taking away projects. 
Um, and that's exactly what happened at Source Philip. What's intriguing is how busy they would have been. You know, as Maria's already mentioned with the stele of Ramesses, all of these barges would have been lined up across them. There would have been, the sailors would have been there, the, the oarsmen, the rudderman, the rope makers, the, the men who pulled the sledges, the men who've unloaded the barges with the empty sledges that have come back from the temples, having deposited their blocks off. Um, the sledges would then have to be taken back up into the quarry side itself along the transportation routes. All of this hustle and bustle is full of life. And today, nothing. It's like any industrial brown side, which today just lays dormant. Uh, this is huge. I mean, as Maria's already alluded to, there were thousands of people there at any given time working all these various different jobs. And today there's just us and our crew wandering around sweeping up the dust. As an anthropologist and a social historian at heart, I have to say that I was so curious about who these workers were. You know, John set such a, a really kind of a haunting scene for me. You know, in my mind's eye, imagining these thousands of workers doing all sorts of different tasks to pull off these monumental building efforts all up and down the Nile in the New Kingdom period. And, you know, I, I just wanted to know more about those people. And the person I thought of immediately is my friend, Sophia Aziz, who's a biomedical Egyptologist and who actually does incredible work that lets us get kind of under the skin of some of these workers. So I'm really excited she agreed to join us to contribute to this episode as well. Um, by way of her background, Sophia holds a bachelor's degree in human sciences and a postgrad certificate in Egyptology from the University of Manchester, where she's also finishing up a master's degree in biomedical Egyptology at the KNH Center, which is an utterly unique program that combines the study of ancient Egypt with modern biomedical investigative techniques. So between that really heavy duty scientific analysis and uh, work with more traditional sources such as papyri, which uh, Sophia will tell us in, in greater detail about, uh, she's really able to get up and close with some of these individuals in the past in a way that wasn't possible even a few years ago. So very excited to have you join us in this topic today, Sophia, welcome. Thank you for having me again. Set the historical scene for us, generally speaking, about what characterizes the new kingdom in Egypt in terms of monumental building. Okay, so the New Kingdom period, it began around 1550 BC. So we're talking about three and a half thousand years ago, and it lasted about 500 years. During this time, we have some of the most renowned pharaohs, which even my seven-year-old niece has heard of. So we've got Tutankhamun, Amenhotep III, Hatshepsut, Ramesses II. So it's often described as the golden age of Egypt, because it's a period of prosperity, stability, and huge building projects. So, Sophia, for how many of these sites do we have uh, detailed information about the individuals who actually built the structures? You know, not, not just the, the pharaohs who directed it or you know, even the architects who might have designed these buildings, but 
the everyday workers? So we have snippets of information from various sites, but the most detailed information we have is from the workers' village of Deir al-Medina. This site is actually a hidden gem and provides a wealth of information. What's interesting about this village is that it, that it was built in the desert and not along the banks of the River Nile. And it was home to perhaps one of history's first gated community. So the workers here were assigned to build the extravagant tombs of the pharaohs, but they also built their own tombs as well, their own rock cut tombs with mortuary chapels in very close proximity to their own homes. But what's truly amazing is the nearby village disposal pit. And in this disposal pit were discovered thousands, and I'm talking tens of thousands of what I like to think of as the first text messages in history. <laughs> I love it, the first text messages of the first gated community. This is great. Uh, this I can relate to. <laughs> so, you know, the, so they wrote on bits of limestone flakes and broken pottery known as ostracur. So they functioned really as little notepads. So they contain messages such as love notes, grocery lists, medical prescriptions, receipts. And then you get some that functioned as little sketch pads for the village artists. So, you know, I like to think of it as the social media of ancient Egypt. That's remarkable. And, uh, you know, let's be honest, that's the kind of daily communication which gives you the best insight into, you know, uh, what everyday life was like for a group of people. And so so just to recap, to be sure I understand, um, we're talking about uh, the remnants of notes that were basically exchanged within this population in a, in a disposal pit that was for their use. Yeah, so it is just... <gasps> Wow. It's a little bit like, you know, like on Facebook, we might have a post and then when we're bored of that post, we might delete it. So the way they would delete it is just throw it in the rubbish pit. So Exactly. And luckily, you know, don't that this is one of the greatest resources for archaeologists, isn't it? Other people's trash. Exactly. Exactly. And of course, there is also medical papyri that's been retrieved from this particular site as well. There's also, so we have official records as well. So divorces, property matters, disputes. And then these obviously would be the records of everyday life of the workers as well. So I'm actually kind of amazed at the wealth of information and the different sources you just named, Sophia. I mean, just to quickly recap, in archaeological terms, we have these trash pits, which contain basically thrown away memo pads and the, you know, the social media of the time, as you so perfectly put it. We have medical papyri. We have legal records. Um, one thing that I, I wonder is whether there are any records about employees at the sites kept by the administrators of the sites. We do. So we have um, plenty of official records. We have boring ones like divorces, property matters, disputes, but we also have a lot about the workers, especially the absence records of the workers. And um, these, these are really fascinating of 
you know, the reasons why the workers were absent from work. So it would have been the scribe. So basically at the work site, you'd have the scribe who'd be sitting in the corner, sort of away from the other workers. And he would be the one that would be responsible for recording everything. And, you know, they provide fascinating insights. So the records would consist of four parts. So you've got the civil date, including the regnal year, the season, the month, day number. And interestingly, one of the main reasons why people were off work was due to scorpion bites. So this scorpion bites? Scorpion bites, yes. Oh. They beat to the most. And, and you can imagine why, you know, because of the location of where they're working. You can imagine scorpions and snakes would have definitely been a problem. But then we have other things like illnesses of the eyes, legs, hands. There's some illnesses which are just called an illness. They're not mentioned. And it makes me wonder what's going on here. Why are they not more specific? But interestingly, interestingly sometimes the workers were given time off because their daughter was on a period or their wife was on a period. That's, part, that's, 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 that's absolutely forward thinking. That doesn't happen today. <laughs> wow. So I thought that's so interesting. <gasps> what do you make of that? What do you make of that? I think, you know, it, it's good. They finally understand, they're understanding what women go through when they're on a period. <laughs> you know, so I think, I thought that was actually quite touching. That was quite nice. Or oh, it's an excuse to get off work. Who knows? <laughs> but um, so either way, it's a win-win. It's a win-win. Speaking from the point of view of a, of, of a woman. <laughs> so. so sometimes they had time off, you know, if they had to make funeral arrangements for a loved one. And they were granted time off for religious festivals and dedications to a deity. So... There's lots of reasons. Sometimes some workers didn't come to work because they had a bit of a hangover. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we've and got... did they admit that? Did they admit that? Or did they say, yep, she's on her period again? I don't know what that's about. <laughs> Three times in one month. <laughs> well, I, you know, I reckon, you know, one of the illnesses that aren't mentioned, this would probably come into that category. Hmm. The, the, the brown flu, I think it's been called in the part of the world I'm from. You know, from the text, we can see they had a great life, actually. Of course, you know, some of the, the work was extremely difficult, as you can imagine. But these guys knew how to party, that's for sure. It's kind of refreshing to hear about all of these ancient Egyptians focusing on the here and now, as opposed to just the afterlife, which, you know, was the topic of our last conversation on this on this podcast wasn't it Sophia exactly and it's because they enjoyed life so much that they wanted an afterlife they they didn't want it to stop so and you know from a lot of the texts that we're reading we can see that they they did have they worked hard but they had fun too so these these guys had a 10-day working week so they would work for eight days and then have two days off and they would probably work, I'm thinking probably an eight hour shift. So that's highly humane. Yeah, exactly. So what they would do, they would, um, so the village really 
house the, the women and the children. So the men during the working week would actually stay on site. So these sort of temporary hubs that they would stay in during the week. And then they'd make their way back home. at the buildings at the building sites. Yeah, at the, they, okay. they would, yeah. So they would stay at the building site during the week, and then at the weekend go home. And then at the weekend was party time or doing those extra jobs to make the extra money. So we we know that they did extra work for sure. Okay, so. You know, they've got a, a defined work week. They've got time off. Their families living large. Not They're not slaves. Um, so what was the background of, if we could say, a typical worker at one of these monumental sites? I mean, it, it sounds like you, you're saying most, if not all of them, were men, although please correct me if that assumption is wrong. But, um, you know, how, how would they get such a gig? You know, what kind of skills or background would they have to bring to the table? You're, you're correct. I would say at the construction site, it was men. It was men. So that's not to say that women had a subservient role. Women were respected in ancient Egypt and they had a very important role in society. But at the construction site, they, they were definitely men. There was a hierarchy, labor specialization. And this is evident in the pay structure and we have to remember that in ancient Egypt, they had a bartering system at this time. So the workers were paid in rations of food and clothing. In theory, all the artisans of the tomb, and definitely the foremen and the scribes, they were directly appointed by the vizier. And um, the vizier would be the highest official, so he would be the one that was directly under the pharaoh. So if the workers had a serious problem, perhaps a complaint against a foreman, they would have felt that they could appeal to the vizier for aid. So there were always two foremen. So that, this is interesting. There were two foremen because there were two crews, which were called the right and the left, that worked both sides of the royal tomb. So... The foremen were really the overseers of the work on a daily basis. So they were regarded as the administrators or chiefs of the tomb workers. So the foreman would have been concerned with the technical work, its progress and the workers themselves. Whereas the scribe would be doing the record keeping and all the, the boring administrative work. So, as I mentioned, the scribe would have sat apart of the tomb each day, noting who was absent from work, recording things such as deliveries to the workforce. And um, he was also responsible for recording events in the village as well, such as official visits. So we can say he basically created a diary of the tomb. So he would write, sort of jot these little notes on bits of ostraca, and then later you probably formalize them as his notes or entries in his papyrus roll. So these he would have to give to the vizier. And um, so probably more than anyone, I would say the scribe was a true on-site representative of the government. And then we've got um, other tomb workers. We've got, you know, we've got 
carpenters, plasters, draftsmen, but then we've got these um, quarry workers who were the ones that had to cut through this huge aperture in the limestone cliff. And, you know, maybe a lot of people would say they're unskilled, but do you know what? It does take skill to cut through sedimentary rock. I mean, I think, Karen, you and I couldn't just grab a copper chisel and start. Ah, uh, no, no. Oh, no. I think that's one thing that I found really interesting in my conversation with Maria and John and talking about the real skill and, and frankly, a degree of art in reading the landscape, in reading the stone, in knowing where the, the fault would break cleanly to produce the stone they wanted. So yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And then of course, we've got the draftsmen and they would be the ones that would come in and you know do all the sketching, draw the lines. And then you've got the, the painters who would come in and do the painting. So there's a lot of workers involved in creating these elaborate tombs. And in terms of pay, it seems like the skilled and the unskilled workers were probably paid roughly the same amount. Really? Russians. Yeah, and I think that's because it's probably because the ones who had more specialized skills could probably get extra work. So out of the work shift, they probably just had just had the means of um, accruing more wealth. So they they could be building furniture for other people at the village. They they could be doing all these other creative things that I suppose the, the guys that are cutting through the bedrock just couldn't do. So that's a really interesting point. Well, and if you're being paid in rations, I mean, uh, you know, the human body, you know, we all need about the same amount of food to survive, right? But that makes me wonder whether there might have been differences in their housing or or other other provisions. Is there any evidence for uh, you know, a differential between the skilled and unskilled workers in that respect? Well, the housing was actually provided by the state in this particular village, because this village was actually created for these workers. And after those few hundred years, when they'd finished building the tombs, that village, I mean, everybody just left. So mm. in terms of the housing, most of the houses had about four rooms and um, that's five. quite big that sounds big to me for ancient yeah, Egypt I mean that is quite big actually because they would have been considered sort of middle class these workers you know they were prestigious workers because they were working for the pharaoh and they were creating the eternal home for the pharaoh and the pharaoh's family so their job was considered very important so I think, you know, other people in society would have really respected these workers because they probably had the most important job. And, um, but the scribes and higher officials had larger houses for sure. But the average house, I would say, had about four rooms. And they had um, an underground cellar as well, where perhaps they put food and um, maybe some of their treasures. But yeah, in terms of um, quality, I think, you know, social status did not depend on finances alone. Family 
family reputation, connections, education, and personal skills may have been just as significant because it was quite a tightly knit society. But of course, there was a powerful sector at the top who earned more control and they control the judicial process as well. So they would have formed the majority in the local tribunal. Yeah, okay. Well, speaking about, say, tribunals, I, I in listening to what sounds like a pretty cushy setup, frankly, all things considered for the ancient world and, and for heavy construction in stone, what, what evidence do we have for discipline and, and punishment? Was that sort of thing recorded by the scribes as well? You know, if, if one of these workers just didn't, didn't toe the line? We, we do. We do find um, evidence of discipline and punishment as well. So the triumvirate was responsible for maintaining law and order in the workplace and the village as well. So on the weekends, they sat on the local tribunal that heard complaints. And it would have been the foreman who carried out the decisions of the court. If letters needed to be sent to the vizier concerning anything to do with work, the named correspondent would have been the foreman. Um, and, but it would have been the scribe who would have penned the letters because he would have been specifically trained for the niceties of official letter writing. But yeah, they just, you know, I think what we find here is where the hierarchy does make a difference. And it would have been the higher end officials that would make decisions. And that did give them power sometimes, which could be abused. Mm -hmm. Well, as in any, as in any workplace, right? That's the thing. I think, you know, wherever you have power, there's going to be exploitation of that power. And we, we see this now as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and that, that makes me wonder about, you know, generalized dangers and risks to this type of work. I mean, I, I, I suppose working with, with heavy building materials is inherently a risk, but, but is there anything more specific you could point to um, that might you know, make this a risky job? But of course, there would have been occupational injuries while quarrying. There's actually an interesting humorous drawing in one of the tombs which depicts a worker accidentally dropping a copper chisel and only just missing another worker. And he's sort of looking up at him thinking, oh, did <gasps> really? Do so, you think that was that like sort of the be careful um, public service announcement of the day? Like watch your chisel, watch the workers oh. around you. <laughs> and like hashtag chisel. <laughs> That's so, fascinating. So it's, you know, I, I quite like the fact that they, they had a lot of humor as well. So that, that's, that's so funny. But yeah, I mean, we know that there definitely were injuries because what's interesting about the Deir al-Amadina site is not just that we have all these texts. We also have human remains from there. So a combination of studying both really gives us an overall insight of what life was like there. So, with Deir al-Medina, um, they actually had a medical infrastructure which was provided by the state. So these workers were really cared for. So they had a healthcare plan, basically. <laughs> they did. 
They did. Oh, tell us about that. What, how much detail do, do we know about that? The majority of medical magical texts that come from Dero Medina are from the archives of a scribe named Kenna Kepshev. There's also medical texts that are written on Ostraka. So these contain instructions on things such as headaches, stomach aches, fevers, scorpion bites, and even recitations against demons. What's really interesting though, is that during the New Kingdom period, we have medical papyri, which was written exclusively in this period. So um, of course, these could be copies of earlier medical texts, but we do know that they were written during this period. So we've got, for instance, the Edwin Smith papyrus, Ebers, Hurst, and the Edwin Smith is really interesting because it's a manual for treating patients with physical trauma. So it consists of cases that start with head injuries. Unfortunately, it's not complete. But what's interesting is that the treatment of fractures is not that dissimilar from how they're treated now. So the ancient Egyptians were also using casts and splints following fracture reduction. And this actually is verified in the discovery of human remains at the site, where we see people with perfectly healed fractures. Of course, sometimes they weren't successful, so we do have examples of misaligned bones as well. But I do find it interesting that they were using the same sort of methods that we use now. The Egyptians, yeah, they used interesting ingredients. They were using herbs, vegetables, animal products. And these animal products even included excrement. So we're talking, you know, everything that could be used was being used. You know, there's even some remedies with cat placenta, for instance. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, they, they experimented on everything. The ancient Egyptians have a lot of remedies, which have a logic that there's rationale there. So they were using ingredients such as honey to treat burns and wounds long before we ever realized the benefits of honey. So they knew what they were doing. There's a lot of remedies now which we thought were absurd, but we can see the logic now. We can actually see that the ancient Egyptians were actually correct. Well, if they're experimenting a lot, you know, you're bound to hit upon things that you wouldn't think would, would be efficacious, but lo and behold, were. Precisely. That is really quite remarkable to, to think about um, the, the uniqueness of these sites where you can actually see proof that this, this treatise wasn't just a prescriptive treatise it, it, or hypothetical, you know, that this was actually what was practiced in looking at how human remains reflect those efforts for, you know, positive outcomes as well as as those that didn't work out. Yes, and what's interesting, they also had a physician that was allocated to them. So they had an on-site physician and this physician would take time off to prepare the medicine. So, you know, they were really cared for because this, this would be unusual to have an on-site physician who 
probably, you know, was there part time because the other time was busy preparing medicine. And some of the rations that the workers were given also had things like honey and fats and oils. And these things were often used in the remedies as well. Oh, so sort of like you could, like having a, a packet of Band-Aids at home, you could sort of have your, your stash of honey if you burnt yourself or something, you know, the way you put vasotracin <laughs> on at home. Oh. Yes, exactly. So, you know, and in fact, you know, if they didn't receive them, they would complain about it. They, you know, haven't received my honey this month or, you know, I think they were paid on the 28th of each month. So, you know, if they weren't given the correct rations, they would complain. And the scribe would write it down. Wow. That, this, is, this is so wonderfully granular. And, you know, we were talking about the women earlier. So the women would be in the village and the women, they, in terms of gender equality, the ancient Egyptians had a lot more gender equality than a lot of the other civilizations at the time. So women could own property. Women were quite independent. If you think about it, the men are often at their side during the week, leaving the women there in the village to look after themselves, to you know, take care of everything, look after the children. And this would have given them a lot of independence. And I think, you know, the only reason why probably the women couldn't go on site, I think if, if they could, they might have done, is because women are the ones having the children. So if you're pregnant, caring for kids, you can't go to the construction site. But that's not to say they didn't do important jobs in the village itself. And what's fascinating about this community is that a lot of them could read and write. And we know this because of all the texts that we found. So, you know, there's some interesting texts like there's um, one particular scribe um, who writes a note to his wife saying, you know, darling, can I, can I have some beans with my bread because bread on its own is really boring. And, you know, perhaps, you know, she would have known he likes beans with his bread. Maybe they had a bit of an argument and she thought, I'll show you. <laughs> no beans for you <laughs> oh i love it you know, we've got these like, really fascinating little notes you know I, I just all of these amazing anecdotes uh, as as well as just the the solid information that we're getting about the the really the good care these workers received uh, down to having a private physician on site dedicated to their to their well-being makes me wonder if we have any evidence for ways in which the workers you know essentially flexed their own muscles with the administration you know um, were there any worker agitations if you mentioned some people would be unhappy if they didn't get their correct rations on on payday but do we have any evidence for collective action and you know i mean i suppose ancient strikes well that's a really interesting question because it's at dero medina that we have the first recorded worker strike ever in history really yeah, we do it's 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 absolutely fascinating it's called the turin strike papyrus so it's um it's dated to the reign of ramesses the third so the workers 
looks like they hadn't received their rations for a considerable length of time. So with the support, one of the foremen, they stopped work and um, they basically staged a sit-in in one of the temples. And then a couple of days later, they marched into another temple and refused to go to work until their needs were met. So we, we know that the scribe, you know, possibly used emotional blackmail, coercive methods, <laughs> try and get them back to work, <laughs> maybe tried everything. But in the end, you know, the, the higher officials, they had to relent and um, they had to open the granary stores at Karnak Temple and give the workers their rations. You know, they had to make them go back to work somehow. Well, yeah. Wow. And, and was, would this have been sort of a surprise, do you think, to the pharaoh? I mean, I, this is not, you know, my area of expertise, but my understanding of pharaonic rule was that it was pretty ironclad. It was pretty solid. You know, what the pharaoh wanted, the pharaoh got. Well, this is what makes it so interesting, is the fact that they felt they could do this. And yeah, think- right. They're defying this godly ruler on earth. That's pretty, pretty gutsy. It is. And I think, you know, it's because they have such a special role as well in society, because these were the guys that were building these extravagant tombs for the pharaohs and their families. So I think, you know, it would have given them a little bit of privilege in society. And obviously, if they had the support of the foreman, some, you know, it would have given them that confidence to do something like this. So, you know, perhaps the foreman hadn't had his ration as well and was fed up. It could have been a particular time of slight hardship. So I think, you know, it's this group action. I think you have power when it's group action and obviously the support of the officials as well. So it was the, you know, it was the poor old scribe trying to <laughs> resolve this every way he could. But in the end, you know, they had to do what the workers wanted. Yeah, no bucks, no buck Rogers. That's what they say these <laughs> days, right? I mean, it, it's, it's actually, it, it's just quite surprising to me, again, you know, just like there is this assumption that that slaves whipped into submission under the, under the this, you know, boiling sun built the pyramids and all the other monuments it's really eye-opening to learn that these work sites were a heck of a lot more equitable that they were a really good job to have and that people felt empowered to actually advocate on their own behalf as workers for the state they did and you know these workers also we have to remember that they sometimes they wouldn't have been that busy with building the tombs so they they also would have worked at other sites as well because sometimes it was thought because it's a gated community these guys were sort of separated from the rest of society so they would have only worked at the tombs but there are snippets of information that sometimes they did work at other sites as well so some of the top officials could decide, well, we don't actually need 70 people working at this site. Let's take a few of you and maybe go to Silsala and do some quarrying there or, you know, go to another site and, and do something else. So this happened as well. And also we have to remember that in the village, 
they would have had a lot of children. And as they're growing up, there wouldn't always have been work for everybody. So again, sometimes they would have had to leave the village and work elsewhere as well. So I don't think it was like a hidden community because sometimes it's thought it was a hidden community because they're building the tombs. These tombs have treasures. So these guys need to be completely isolated and kept private and secret somehow. But evidence just doesn't suggest this was the case. We've got some scribes that didn't actually grow up in Tyrol Medina itself. They came from a different site. We even have the odd foreign name. So we probably had some economic workers which became part of the community sometimes. So I mean, there's very few, but there's glimpses of them. But we do know the names of the people who lived in the village because as they were trekking to back and forth to work, sometimes they would leave little graffiti with their names. <laughs> it wasn't enough to leave your mark by building the pyramids. You, you need to make sure that you've got your tag on the, on the subway overpass. <laughs> I love it. You know, and this is this is so great, and this is why we know so much about them, and and it also shows that a lot of them were literate as well, and and the fact that they're leaving these little names and messages, they obviously know people can read them. Otherwise, what's the point? Oh yeah, yeah, and you know, I okay, you you brought me to exactly where I I'd like to actually pose a final question. Um, about, hey, we, we've got these records. We've got these amazing records, it sounds like, for Der El Medina. My question for you is whether you think that this site is unique for the plethora of, of record keeping that not only was made, but, but somehow managed to survive, or which, you know, whether there were a lot of other sites like it arguably, you know, for which records either were not kept so carefully or just didn't survive? It's often thought that this site is quite unique because it's a village that was built specifically for a reason. And it was a state-sponsored village. So the state provided a lot of things for this village, whereas other workers might have not enjoyed the same privileges. But at the same time, it could be the fact that this village was in the desert, sort of in the middle of nowhere, near the Valley of the Kings. It just happened to survive. So all the material, the evidence just happened to survive. Whereas things that are built of mud bricks or other perishable items near, near the banks of the river just didn't survive as well. It's difficult to say what, what's definite about this village is the fact that we can actually start relating to the people who actually live there. And this itself makes it unique. We get a glimpse into the characters who live there and that just makes them more relatable. So for me, that is what is so unique about this site. So we've got people like an elderly lady who lived there. She'd been married twice. She had eight children. And four of them, because they didn't treat her well, she decided she was going to disinherit them. And she decided to give her favorite son one extra bronze washing bowl than all the other kids. So, you know, little things like this are really interesting. And then we've got um, a couple of scribes. We've got a scribe called Ramos, 
which everybody was really fond of. And then we've got Kenneth Kepshev, the scribe who I've mentioned a few times, who had this huge archive. He wasn't a very likable person. People couldn't really relate to him. And in fact, there's one worker that complains about this particular scribe, saying that um, he only calls him over when he needs some work doing. He never calls him over for a beer. It's always when he <laughs> worked. <laughs> exactly. So in his words, he says he's being treated like a donkey. And then we've got um, a man called Pano, who was a chief workman. So he can be described as the bad boy of Dare El Medina. So he's oh, the bad boy of Dare El Medina. That's that's. <laughs> Okay, tell us about that person. I, I honestly cannot wait to hear about the bad boy of Darrell Medina. <laughs> well, you name it, Panap did it. So, Panap. He's accused of bribing Kenneth Kepshev, you know, the scribe. The scribe, okay, yeah. yeah. So, he was accused of bribing him to go up in the ranks. He's also accused of adultery and sexual assault. So apparently he had affairs with a few married women. And in one instance, he's even accused of raping a woman. But it, it doesn't stop there. He's, he's also accused of misappropriating labor and other resources for his own ends. So he was getting some of the women to weave for him and some of the workers to make furniture for him. He also stole work tools and mm. um, apparently he broke one. <laughs> so, oh, oh, and this is the most interesting. So he's also accused of hurling bricks at people during a party. So you can imagine, you know, everybody in the evenings dancing around, enjoying their drinks. And then he's kind of up the wall, sort of hurling these bricks as they're dancing. And, um, <laughs> He's a real bad boy. He's a misanthrope. Wow. <laughs> but you know, it makes me wonder, is this character defamation by another disgruntled worker? Or was Panab actually this monster that he's, he's been described as? I mean, who knows? But it's interesting because it gives us that insight into the personalities of the workers. I'll say, I mean, to a kind of stunning degree, it's actually far more detail than I had imagined. So thank you. And there you have it. The world of ancient Egypt, full as it is of mystery and wonder, was still a world inhabited by, well, us, homo sapiens. Ordinary people just doing their jobs, day in and day out. Although sometimes with greater diligence and good humor than others. From the staggering extent of quarrying at Madame Silsila to the daily exploits of Pan Ep, the bad boy of Deir el Medina, it's marvelous, indeed, when archaeology allows us to pierce the veil of the distant past and recognize so much that's familiar in the work and lives of people who were, you know, more like us than not, despite the vast divide of 3,000 years. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey there, you can follow today's guests on social media. Dr. Maria Nilsson is at Dr. Maria Nilsson, and John Ward is at John Ward KT on Twitter. Sophia Aziz is on Instagram at Sophia underscore Aziz underscore. 
you can find the handles in the show description too. For show updates and additional content, follow us on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries. Thanks so much for listening. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aiden Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.